Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. Along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, we have the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity, because movement is part of what makes your life complete. Moving to Live interviews professionals in the movement field who have a variety of experiences, education, and professional titles. At the end of the day, we all want to move more, and we want our patients, athletes, or clients to move more or move better more efficiently, or move with less pain. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise professions. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. Each Moving to Live interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single listen, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. Before we get to the interview, a quick request. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the podcast with your friends or anyone who understands that movement is a lifestyle. We appreciate it, and our guests appreciate it too. Welcome back to another episode of Moving to Live. As you heard in the intro, we promote people who promote movement. We like the ethos, movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. And one of the great things about being in the profession is people suggesting other people and just coming across people who make great guests or have a great message to bring on simply because they are who they are and you see them on social media. We've talked before about social media being good and bad. And to be perfectly honest with today's guest, I don't realize or I don't remember when I first came across him or first met him. I think we probably met somehow on social media, I think face-to-face probably two or three months ago. I'm very happy today to be with Robert Linkle. He is the owner of Training the Older Adult. He is a personal trainer who, as I was talking to him prior to recording, I respect because he's made the decision very clearly to be a professional. And one of the things that I think is so important about a professional is being able to give back or help other people. He was mentioning that he always wanted to help get the message across. And I think if there's ever anything that shows that somebody's willing to contribute to the profession, it's their willingness to serve as a volunteer. And I know Robert just a couple of months ago, actually just last month, was elected to the National Strength and Conditioning Association Board of Directors as the personal trainer representative. So I think it's great that you've got somebody who is treating it as a profession and has found his niche of where it is in personal training, representing personal trainers. Robert, thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. My first question, I always like to put people on the spot with moving to live when I get them. What is your elevator spiel or your on the elevator? Maybe not so much now, depending where you are in the world, but hopefully at some point when COVID is under control and you're wearing your t-shirt with your, your company's logo on it, or you're just stuck in the elevator and it gets trapped and somebody says, what do you do? What do you tell them? I work with older people that have injuries and help them become mobile, capable, stable, able to uh, maintain a good quality of life. And um, it's a blessing to be able to do that. I've I've had some unique experiences and um, it's given me an opportunity to kind of connect to the older population. So I feel like I'm pretty well equipped to do that. And um, usually someone says, well, you know, what's, how old is that average person or whatnot? My average client's 72 years old and I have about 80 clients that I get to see either virtually or in person. And, um, had a big studio before we've downsized into a smaller one due, due to COVID and such, but, um, I got a great group of people I get to work with and 
the other half of my business is trainingtheolderadult.com where I train other trainers how to do what I do in the weight room. And I know I want to drop down that rabbit hole in a few minutes, but I want to find out the story first because I think it's very interesting how people get to where they are professionally. I know in my profession, I started out as an athletic trainer. And one of the things I had absolutely no interest in was low back injuries and things like that. And lo and behold, when I started getting low back injuries and herniating discs, I became very interested in it. And that's how it happens. You know, if you told me 20 years ago, that would have been. So I guess the first question is starting out is, were you an active kid? Because if you're going to work with older adults, if you're going to preach movement, you either were somebody who was active all your life or at some point you had the aha moment and it changed your life. So which was it for you? I was a super chubby little inactive kid. And uh, from uh, like 10 to 12, I grew about two feet. And next thing I knew, I was taller than every other kid in my class. So I was um, requested to play basketball and football a lot and actually became fairly athletic. Uh, ended up going to um, Sacramento State University, CSU Sacramento, uh, on a scholarship to throw a hammer in the discus. And so that was my that was my sport of choice. Very passionate about it. Was trying to make the Olympic team in 2008. And that's when I, my, I had my first major injury and uh, blew out my back. And, um, you know, I was a, I was 235 pounds and most hammer throwers are 270, 280. I mean, they're big guys. I was really undersized. And uh, I, I just, I remember seeing these guys. I, I lived with another thrower, a shot putter who could literally leap over his Volkswagen. Like the guy could just jump over it. He just had, he had a level of athleticism that I didn't possess. And I remember thinking, if I'm going to hang with these guys, I have got to do something different. If they're going to, if they're going to squat twice a week, I need to do four days a week. And if they're going to take, you know, 25 throws of practice, I need to take 50. And so I just put my mind to it because I wasn't that athletic. I would outwork this mentality. I'd outwork them. And, um, I think it did more harm to me than good. Ultimately, in my performance, I would totally do things different. I'd throw 70 meters now if my body was healthy and I only threw 64 meters in college. Like I, knowing what I know now, you know, it's that kind of thing. And um, the, the injuries, the wear and tear that I put through my body, it was massive. I mean, I did in probably 15 years of throwing, I did 50 years worth of damage. So um, to go down the list, I've had my L4, L5, L5S1, both discs ruptured and then discectomies to fix those. Um, a year later, I had a carcinoid tumor in my lung uh, that had taken over 80% of my lung. I had that removed. Uh, eight months after that, I had a tumor re removed from my thyroid. I had my thyroid taken out. Uh, then I had three good years and ended up having arthroscopies on both my hips, then having full hip replacements on both my hips at at 36, the one hip, my left hip, second one dislocates seven times and I have to have it a full revision done on the left one. So I've had three hip replacements. Um, I tore a ligament and ruptured a cyst and um, collapsed my, my right wrist carpal tunnel from throwing and lifting. So I had three separate surgeries to fix all that. I've had a hernia repair and um, and I think that's it. Yeah. So all in all, I've had 14 surgeries uh, and have uh, some extra titanium and stuff and missing a few parts. But all of that 
if you take a lot of that, this is that Alan Cosgrove line, because I don't, I don't tell you all this stuff to impress you, but to impress something upon you. And uh, Tony Robbins line is that life is not happening to us. It's happening for us. And my wife and I embrace that a hundred percent. We really look at the mindset of all these things are happening for us to do something with. I got to, I have to learn from this information and being a younger individual, having an experience to know what it's like to be a 70 or 80 year old right now, to go through those surgeries, to go through different treatments, to go through the rehabilitations, um, to be able to connect, to be able to empathize, to be able to recognize what they will go through and to not only help my people in here, but then teach other trainers. Cause those are the two questions I get. What do I do and how do I do it with them to be able to teach that to, to these other trainers? Um, that's my purpose. It's my Dharma, my, my purpose in life. And, um, trying to do that every day to the best of my abilities and be able to affect as many people as possible with it. Very meaningful. I'm curious with the story that you've told and and what you've said, looking back, if you could take however old Robert is right now and plop you back when you're 21 or 22 before the injuries from throwing happened, would you, do you think you could have modified your training and potentially made the Olympics? Or do you think maybe you would have been significantly better without the wear and tear? I would have been significantly better. I don't think I would have made the Olympics. I would have had to throw, you know, 75 or 78 meters, which um, I don't think I could have done. But I think I could have made some Olympic trials. I could have been, you know, sponsored by Reebok as like a a startup, you know, potential athlete. So I think I could have earned a full, you know, full sponsorship with them and competed and maybe gone to, you know, some international competitions and just made more of a career of it. But um, I don't regret anything. That's, you know, I, that's a question I get a lot. I don't regret it because I've, I learned so much from it, but if I had a chance to go back and say, you'll still learn everything, you know, you get to learn and you'll, you'll still have all these experiences, but you could change some things. I'd be like, take some rest days. Don't, you know, (laughs) don't worry about how much you can pull off the floor because the throw is only done in the top 30% of your, you know, of your range of motion. Like there was, there was so many mistakes that I made. And so many things that I just thought, well, I'm, I trained with football players and I I didn't have a coach and I was just pulling information out of books. And, you know, in 99 to 2007 and eight, the internet wasn't what it is now where stuff's instantly at your fingertips. It was harder to find information then. So it was difficult to try to piece together things on my own. And, uh, yeah, it would be a whole different ballgame now. I've had the opportunity to work with some really young athletes and help them throw and throw far. And, um, a lot of the strategies we implement now are because, you know, I learned, learn what not to do. And I think, I know we have a wide variety of people who listen to moving to live. And for those of you who aren't familiar with individual field sports and track and field, even if you don't make the Olympics, if you're able to be a sponsored athlete, I mean, you could be the fourth or fifth best thrower in the U S and you could potentially, depending on the year, if, if I remember correctly, be as good as top seven or eight, literally in the world. And yep. you never, you never know if you go to an international competition, you have the meat of a lifetime and set a PR or have the opportunity to continue to throw. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. I think it's very interesting to hear you as a professional, a personal trainer, and I, and I don't say that lightly to talk about what you did and to make the comment that, Hey, I did too much because I think so much when we talk about movement and we talk about fitness and we talk about exercise, 
and I'm doing this in air quotes because we're, we're on Zoom, so many people want to crush it every time. And there you were mm -hmm. in the first 10 minutes of conversation, you said, I would have rested more. So I'm curious with the throwing history, it would be very easy with all of those injuries and all of those things to just say, okay, I'm done with physical activity. And yet here you are in a career encouraging other people to move. So while you were in college, were you a physical education major? Were you, mm -hmm. what was your career goal? Because even we know as a thrower, you know, you're not somebody who's going to have a 25 year, year career and make a yeah. couple of hundred thousand dollars a year. Did you have a, was this a plan to be some sort of a personal trainer or a strength coach all along when you were throwing? Well, I went to school originally um, to be a PE teacher and I got uh, into my second semester where we got to go out and student teach. And at the time I was working as a personal trainer just to get some kind of living, just to make some kind of money. And uh, as I go into the school, I go to teach. The kids aren't listening. N none of them really want to do what I'm doing. Um, they're super annoyed because it's not their regular teacher. And we're going through this process and I'm like, this is awful. Like, why? <laughs> why? Like, you know, and I talk to the teacher and she's like, no, it's normally like this. It's not just because you're here. Like, they just don't want to do this. And I went to maybe one or two more student teaching sessions. And I'm like, these, these kids want nothing to do with me. They don't want nothing to do with their own teacher. These other folks want to be here so badly and they want to spend so much time with me. They'll pay me to be here with them. And there was just this moment, this flip in my head. I'm like, why am I doing this? You know, like what is it? It was, it was the mindset of um, become a PE teacher, strength coach, profession. Um, it's, it's more, there's more clout, you know, you have your CSCS and there's standards and you've got, you know, You've got a, a university on your on your shirt, and then when you're a trainer, you know you're slapdick. You get you all you do is bench press and curls, and you're worried about what you look like and what not what your your clients do. And you know we're depicted on TV terribly. Every CSI and every show, we're always drug dealers and we're sleeping with our clients, and you know we're killed by kettlebells, and it's always something stupid. It's like it's it's depicted terribly. And I I remember having this moment of like. I'm going to embrace this profession and make it, I'm do everything I can to make it legit and, and be like, I, I, yeah, I'm a personal trainer, but I'm a good one. Like I don't have to declare that in every conversation. I can just say, I am a professional personal trainer. This is what I do, you know, with my life. And that included getting a master's degree in sports science with an emphasis in personal training, um, getting my CSCS, you know, maintaining distinction every year with that when we research and um, pursuing you know, higher levels of education and different mentors to work with. And just, you know, I'm in a constant pursuit of more knowledge to be able to help these people in here and the other trainers that I work with. And, um, and then to try to give some kind of direction or clarity to those that are entering the field that have the same thoughts and the same mindset. They want to do this professionally. Okay. I can, I can help you. I can help create a roadmap for you to do this. Cause I didn't, I didn't have that. I had a guy come up to me and say, you look the part. I was applying for a front desk job at a YMCA. And he goes, you look like a trainer. Do you want a job as a trainer? And I said, I don't, I'm not certified. I don't know. And he goes, that doesn't matter. Do you want it? And I'm like, um, sure. And he handed me a Schmedium polo shirt and said, hop out there. And I started training people. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. you know. And he goes, just do what you do. So I had these old ladies with bad shoulders doing snatches and making people do box jumps. And I was like, this is what I do as a thrower. It was terrible. And um, I wasn't any good. And I decided when I, you know, went to school and I'm talking to 
Harry Theodorides, one of the best uh, Olympic lifting coaches in the nation. Just he and, and uh, Kutzer are these two like famous strength coaches from this area. And uh, Harry was like, you want to be a trainer? You don't know what you're doing? And I'm like, no. And he goes, check out the NSCA. They'll point you in the right direction. And because uh, I was always asking him why. Like, why are you doing it this way? Why are you? And he goes, you, you want like to read research? I said, yeah, I want to know why we're doing this. Check out the NSCA. And you tell me that every day. So I got my membership in 04. I've never, never turned back. And I think one of the things we were chatting a little bit beforehand, before we started recording is the barrier to entry to be a personal trainer is very, very low. However, however, (laughs) we'll let you say that again. Yeah, there really isn't one. Like it used to be, oh, you have to have an accredited certification and first aid, you know, CPR, and you have to be at least 18 and have a high school diploma. It's not even that anymore. You can just, you could be selling insurance one day. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying you could be selling insurance one day, go home and say, I want to become a trainer and sit down in front of your computer for two hours and then print out your certificate and you're a trainer. And there's nobody out there that's going to say, no, you're not, or you did it the wrong way. Off you go. You can just go and work. That's how, that's how un, I mean, in, in the industry, we're all going to look at you and say, you didn't do that right. You know, there's no clout to it. In that terms, like, hey, try to have some standards for, you know, what certification you're pursuing and try to get some higher education and like do this right. But there's there's no personal training police that are going to say, hey, no, 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 you got to go do this or your insurance isn't going to count. If you, there's none, none of that. There literally is no there's nothing. And I know you could read this on various forums and blogs and things like that. And you'll have two groups of people. One group of people say it's OK. The cream will rise to the top. And the other group will say, we need to do something to get licensure. We need to do, be treated more as medical professionals. You know, look at what athletic trainers did. Mm-hmm. Where do you fall into the side of, side of that? Well, um, there's 371 million Americans, right? And 68% of them are obese and out of shape. And according to the IRS, there's 280,000 people working in the fitness profession. So if you do that math, that comes out to like 486 clients per personal trainer or fitness professional that we could potentially work with. And there's no way we can work with that many people. So my answer would be, we need more people like this, this, the battle, my battle is with sarcopenia. Okay. Older people, they start to lose their muscle mass. They lose it so much. They can't function anymore. There's battle with obesity. There's a battle, a battle with, um, with, with body image. There's, there's, there's all these different battles that we could have and it all roots in the terms of people are not placing uh, heavy enough emphasis on their health, on their nutrition, on their sleep, on their recovery. There's not, there's not enough emphasis on them. We're, we're just working ourselves to death and stressing ourselves to death. So I think the answer is, is we definitely need a lot more people to help battle that, to help these, you know, these, these efforts but we have to have some people that are willing to put in the work to learn how to do that correctly. So I wouldn't mind seeing some kind of standard that came in and said, you know, let's, let's have um, at least a two year degree, if not an equivalent of, you know, 40 continued education hours that would equal that something along those lines before you could say, I've earned my accredited certification. You know, you've had some practical application you've shadowed, you know, as in almost any other profession, you think of the frontline access we have. Like we're literally frontline. I get to see my people three, maybe four times a week. 
and they see their dentist twice a year if they're lucky, their doctor, maybe more now lately, but two or three times a year, a physical therapist two or three times a year, the person that does their hair once a month, they're seeing me eight to 12 times a month. And I'm the least certified, the least accredited, the least overviewed, the least, I, I have no standard in which other than my personal standards, right? I have no standard, nothing is governing me to make sure what I'm doing with them is appropriate. So I do think we need something there. I think it would be great to do that. I'd love to see all the major certifying organizations come come together and create something like that. Not really a union, but just a a standard where they're like, let's have everybody get their first aid CPR. Let's have everybody get one of our accredited certs. Let's have everybody do you know, 40 hours of shadowing and on the job training before they can work with a client, something that just kind of gets you established. And there's a roadmap to help you be successful because we have the highest turnover rate too. You always see this, I know I'm rambling, but you always see this like, oh, by 2030, we're going to be the biggest growing professional. And they don't talk about how many people drop out of that. And there's so many people, they don't make it like six or eight months and then they're off doing something else. So that's why you see, oh, you know, this organization had 25,000 new members this year, but their overall membership over the three-year period didn't grow that much when they recertified. People didn't make it. They don't know how to make a living. They don't know how to maintain. They don't know how to stay here. They don't know how to earn new clients, maintain new clients, and on a program. They don't know shit. And so they just, they just get thrown into this. And that's what happened with me 20 years ago, and it still hasn't changed now, you know? I think you, you've had a couple of pearls of wisdom that kind of are some of my pet peeves in a good way. I mean, you mentioned the NSCA, which I'm also a member of. There are a number of other organizations that are very highly respected. ACSM, NASM has come on the field in, in recent ACE. years. Mm-hmm. ACE. And I think one of the things that so many people who maybe don't have the professional experience or the life experience that you have or I have miss out with joining these organizations. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you know people that every year, no matter which one of these organizations, if it's time to recertify or if it's time to, jo- to join the membership, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe I have to pay for this again. What do I get? And to me, I enjoy getting the journals. I mean, that's mm-hmm. to me, they're very valuable to be able to go back 20 some years and see, you know, here's this new recent art, this new exercise that maybe somebody is showing on Instagram and you're like, wait a second, I remember seeing that 20 years ago, you know, but I think what people miss out, it's the professionals. It's the fact that you're making connections with people who are maybe not, 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 uh, knowledgeable with older adults like you are, but they're knowledgeable in other areas. And I suspect, I don't know for sure, but if I ask you to name 25 people that you could call with a specific question that you've met over the years in the NSCA, you'd say, I can't stop at 25 because I've always said the benefit of joining a professional organization is the members. I mean, all the stuff that the organization does is great, but the most valuable part is not the networking, but the connections, the people that you develop the relationships with who will help you get clients, who will recommend people, but more importantly, will share their knowledge. And let me, I don't, I I feel stupid doing this, but I'm going to name drop just because it's a, it's a cool opportunity, but not five minutes before we started, I was on a half hour conversation with Dan John. And that was because of an NSCA event that I, when I was a state director that I got to host and he spoke at, and we now have a relationship and we get to chat and I can call and ask for advice and he's going to come speak at our event. And it's like that whole thing came about, you know, and, and same with Alan Cosgrove and, 
you know, Mike Boyle and like there's, you know, Stuart McGill and there's all, all these folks that we have the, the pleasure of getting to meet. And um, when you get to volunteer with the organization as well, you get extra opportunities to connect with these folks and chat with them and develop relationships with them because we're the ones that host the event. You know, I had six years as a state director, seven years as a regional coordinator. So, I mean, 13 years, I'm, I'm running two or three events every year and looking for new speakers and bringing them in and hotels and dinners and socials and airport drives. And, you know, I had a two and a half hour layover with Lauren Landau, the Denver Broncos uh, strength coach. And, you know, just sitting and talking with him in, in, in the, you know, uh, Dallas airport was like one of the coolest experiences I ever had. Just chatting with him about the athletes and hearing all the stories about what they do and how he trains them. And I, you wouldn't get that anywhere else. I wouldn't have that experience any other way. So the organization gives back in so many different ways. You, you get what you are willing to put into it. And if it starts with the journals and just the access to the research, that's fantastic. But you started by saying it, or maybe, maybe you said it right before we went on, but it's the people. It's the people you get. And I always say I have two families. I have, I have my nuclear family here and I have my NSCA family and I've missed my NSCA family. I finally got to see you guys, you know, after two years, we've all been on this two, two year, you know, layoff from nationals and all that, you know, finally getting to go to Orlando and, and to get to see everybody and, you know, making sure people were okay with getting hugs before they hug. But I hug some people harder than I've hugged people in a long time. Cause you know, 18 months of being by ourselves and not being around our people and our friends and our colleagues and, doing what we get to do every year, you know, that was rough. That was, that was hard. And, um, you know, I know there were a lot more struggles outside of just not seeing our buddies, but you know, that was, that's something I look forward to every year. Those are my, those are my people. That's our community, you know, our friends. I agree. I'm interested. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I don't know if somebody said it to me, I know I didn't invent it, but if you're going to do something, try to do it better than other people do it. And try to do it differently. Mm-hmm. So I know very often when somebody's a young person and maybe they say, you know, I want to be a personal trainer. I, I, I don't want to be a strength coach. I want to work with, I don't say this in a negative way. I want to work with average people. I don't want to work yeah. with athletes because athletes, yeah. sometimes athletes can be jerks, you know, especially if they're motivated for that goal and, and they're, and they're focused on that. Mm-hmm. Uh but very often, and I know when I was younger, it's like, I didn't want to deal with old people. And I had an experience a few years ago, having the opportunity to work with an older gentleman who unfortunately, when I was working with him, developed cancer and ended up dying. And just mm-hmm. realizing that one of his greatest thrills in life was to be able to come and do a personal training session after mm-hmm. chemo was, was amazing. And I don't know if that I was older or more confident, but my question to you is when you said, okay, I don't want to do this student teaching. I don't want to be a teacher because the kids don't want to be here. I want to do the personal training because people are paying me and want to be here. At that point, was there a decision that, hey, I want to work with older adults or was, had, did that come later? And if so, how did it come about? Right around the same time we made that decision, I, I made that decision is when I started to hurt myself a bit. And um, and I write, you know, I, I, I would write for our magazine and our company newsletter and that kind of thing. So as soon as I hurt myself, I wrote about it. And, um, I had an article, uh, that said back to my futon. And it was basically, I, I couldn't sleep on a bed because my back hurt so badly. So I had a futon and, uh, I remember having back surgery and, and coming in and laying on the futon thinking, well, there goes my, there goes my career. And, uh, as a thrower, you know, and, um, 
I wrote, I wrote this whole article about how I felt in that moment and, you know, the emotions I was going through and what's my rehab going to be like, and will I be the man that I was and all this. And our company published it. They put it in the newsletter, put it in a magazine. And I had, I don't know, 30 new clients from that article over the next three months of people that were like, I totally understand. I used to be an athlete and I blew out my knee and my back and I want to work with you. And, you know, as I was rehabbing myself, I was starting to work with all these clients that, you know, needed um, not rehab, but just needed to strengthen areas of weakness that they, they didn't fix right the first time or things that were bugging them that they wanted to improve. And um, during that whole time, this isn't a knock on the other trainers. It's just, it's what the other trainers called me. So that's why I bring it up. But the other trainers called me the smart trainer because whenever I wasn't training, I was reading and they'd come in and be like, what are you reading about today? And I'm like, you know, 20 year old swimmers with testosterone imbalances have developed more lateral, you know, like whatever it is, like I'm going through the thing. Right. And they're like, that's interesting, Rob. And they'd walk away. So I became known as the smart trainer and the clients started to call me that. And I started getting other trainers, clients to come work with me once a week with, with the client, with the trainer's request to come work with me, help them with their back, help them with their knee, whatever their issue is. And then they'd go train with the other trainers the other two days of the week. So basically I got everybody that was broken, you know, and, and I would help do the best that I could to fix them. So the trainers could, you know, do their CrossFit training, their high intensity training, their other boot camps, other things they were doing with them. And, um, which was fine with me. I had a, I had a great group of people and I got to work with and a wide variety of different limitations and things. And as I continued to write about my experiences and have more limitations that those experiences trended towards older pops. So I just naturally started to get older clients and it was probably like 2009 or 2010 where I said, I don't, I don't know if I'm really going to work with anyone younger. I'm not going to purposely say no, or just say, but in terms of an area of focus for me, I can do, I can do more with older populations because they're really the ones that need it the most. You know, you think of all the battles that they're going to go through when you're younger, your, your bones are dense and you have more natural muscle mass and all this. As we get older, that's when we really need the resistance training. We really need that. And we need good quality coaching. And yet at most facilities, the older people get the brand new trainers, the ones that don't know how to train. And they're like, no, 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 you don't get the athletes you get the old people, right? So go run the, the silver, the 50 and over, the whatever titles they give it. Go run that class. Go train those clients for a couple of years. And then maybe we'll let you work your way up. And then you'll get to work with, you know, the elite levels or, you know, the, you know, the athletic clients or train some of the teams and that kind of thing. And it's like, well, the older populations have more limitations, more injuries, more things to work with. And there's a greater success and there's a greater line of failure with them. If you were successful with this client, you help improve the quality of their life where they can walk, they can, you know, play with their grandkids, whatever it is. But if you screw up or if you don't do the job, maybe you accelerate and make it worse for them. You help them blow out their back. You help them destroy their knees. You you know what I mean? So we're taking the most uneducated people and giving them to the ones that need the most educated person. And one, one doesn't want to be there at all. And the other one doesn't know any better. Right. So it's a huge, it's a huge cluster. If you know what I mean. And I'm so curious, like, I don't know if you realized this when you brought it up, but you, you brought to mind a question that, that I've noticed before, 
one of the things that's very often to see in the profession, and you can go to various conferences by different organizations, and there's two groups of people often. There's the, and I'm stereotyping, there's the air quotes, the researchers or the eggheads, and there's the practitioners. Right. And the researchers always say, well, the practitioners, you know, they, they don't know what's going on. And the practitioners say there's too much research. I think you hit on something uh, a few minutes ago where you said with the work with older adults, I mean, you have the unique ability and personal trainers have the unique ability. And I don't say this lightly or to be flippant to go out tomorrow and kill somebody if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And I don't say that to be flippant. I say that in, in all seriousness. And I mean, it's it's a concern. Why do you think for so many people who are in the more practitioner realm, because not everybody wants to be a researcher, not everybody even wants to write like you write, but they should be consuming information constantly because what you were doing in 2009, you can probably look back in some cases now and go, wow, yeah, I know so much more now. I can, I can do, be so much better. Maybe it's because the information has developed or maybe it's just because you understand the information better. Why do you think there's that? thought of, okay, I'm certified. I'm in my career. I'm done. I don't need to continue to learn. I don't know. I think that's, and again, we're stereotyping a little bit and a lot, a lot of the trainers that I have met that have that mentality didn't get a certification or didn't maintain a certification and just did kind of the bare minimum. And they're like, well, I worked underneath this person and I know what I'm doing and I'm good. And, and that's, you know, I, I think there's a certain mindset to that and, and a certain level where maybe to this moment you are good, but the athlete or the individual you're going to work with in a year from now or two years from now is going to have something you don't know how to deal with, how to progress. And they're going to start learning. You're going to get left behind. Basically, you know, everything else around you is going to progress. And in the beginning, we got this big, thick blue book that said the journal of strength and conditioning. And you had to be able to read that. And I looked at that and I'm like, I don't know what this shit, I have no idea. Like the abstracts didn't even make sense. And then the Journal of Strength and Conditioning turned into the Strength and Conditioning, um, uh, or the, they have the one for research, the blue one. And then you have, then you have now the, the Journal for Strength and Conditioning, one that's a little bit more um, user-friendly. And it's taking that research and it's giving um, strategies to, to, to apply and it's giving progressions and it's giving other research articles that you could reference if you need more information on it. And then the internet came along and now there's more web webinars and there's more video libraries. Now we're developing into bigger conferences and we're having more people come in and be able to learn. Now we have digital conferences where you can virtually be on and be in. So, I mean, it's only grown more to where it's like, it's kind of ridiculous. If you say at this point, either I don't have a way to learn or I don't have a way to that, that excuse doesn't fly anymore because you can, you can literally just get on Instagram or Facebook and still find follow Brad Schoenfeld, follow, follow, uh, Nick Tuminello, follow Jonathan Mike, um, Len Kravitz, like get get on with these people who do real research and start to show it just in their post. You can just learn from that. You don't even have to go to the conferences necessarily, you know. So there are great opportunities to learn just from the basic information people put out. I call it newsletter university. Like sign up everybody that you like, sign up for their newsletter because I mean some of the best information I've received is in in newsletters. And, and, you know, they're giving this information. So you'll want to, you know, expand and get more information from them or buy their book or do their course, but they're still giving you very good, you know, applicable stuff that you can use right now. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but 
you are. It, it seems silly to, to say like you can't learn or you're not willing to learn now. I don't, I don't think that flies in this industry at all. You're going to get left behind very quickly. It's interesting. You said sign up for the newsletters. I actually have a separate Gmail address for newsletters. That, oh man, you're my, you're my guy. <laughs> I did the same thing. You stole it from me. <laughs> and what's actually very funny is some of these people who are newsletters have become not just people that I read, but, but personal friends. Yeah. And it's at least once once or twice a year, I'll, I'll get a text message from one of them saying, what the heck is your email address? Because it doesn't sound like it's whatever it is. And I have three email addresses for you. <laughs> well, like right here, I have Brett Bartholomew's email. His, his newsletters are some of the best ones. I think he gives so much good information in there. Um, the Personal Trainer Development Center, they put one out every Sunday. That's Jonathan Goodman and uh, Lou Schuler there. Those are two two of the best guys in our industry, and they give out great info. And they highlight like the 10 best articles produced that week, and they share those out and links to all of them. And then um, what's the other one I really like on Sundays? Um, Dan John has his, his weights, uh, wandering weights. That's always good. That's just kind of... Is his mind, his thoughts on paper, but there's one more. It'll come to me. There's the stoic strength coach that I believe comes out every Sunday. And what he does mm -hmm. is he has just a brief blog post, but he also gives a research article of the week, a podcast article of the week. And I think one other thing of the week, which it's, it's very interesting to see. I mean, we just named off what 10 of them right there. Like yeah. that's, you know, there's a lot to consume there. So there's, there's plenty to, to learn. I'm looking back through my, cause I like to fight Tony Gentlecore. That's, that's my other one I get on Sundays. Tony's got great stuff, especially like I'm not a whiz when it comes to the shoulder. That's probably the area that I'm least knowledgeable about. And he's the guy, you know, so a couple plugs for those guys, but um, there, there's no, there's no way for us not to continue to learn in some fashion. And if you good advice is, you know, take, one client and, and that client every week, whatever you get from them on your, your Friday at 6 a.m. client, take that money and put it in an envelope and go to a conference every year. Like just make that one session every week, like make that 40 bucks go to your continued education every year. And if you save that $40 every week, you should be able to afford a hotel room, a flight and the conference, you know, and go down there and do it. And you'll meet some of the best people, lifelong friends and learn some fantastic things. And I mean, have you ever gone to a conference and said, man, I, I wasted my time going to this one? <laughs> There's you either learn some good things or you learn, you even learn about things that you didn't want to learn about, but you're like, well, now I know I'm not interested in that. So you're always learning, you know? I, I remember my advisor and my doctoral studies made the comment once. And I think this is, you, you learn by seeing, he would go to a conference and you would see him every day going in and out of sessions all day long. But he said, if you go to a conference and you pick up one thing that helps you professionally, that conference was worth going to. Mm -hmm. 100%. I agree. So we're talking with Robert Linkle. Robert, I want to finish up by kind of diving a little bit deeper into your passion and what, and what you do, the working with older adults, because you had a couple of statistics that you kind of spit out pretty rapidly at the beginning. And actually... I had heard 72% of Americans are overweight or okay, obese. So but, it's even more. <laughs> but, but I do know, I also was reading some world health statistics for something I'm writing now. And at least 25% uh, to a third of the, of the population, adult population of the world doesn't get the bare minimum of exercise. Hmm. 
And if we look at the bare minimums of exercise, it really isn't that extreme. And I'm sure you've got numerous clients that just in gardening or everyday life, they get that. Mm -hmm. So I know one of the things people say when working with older adults is they'll say, well, I don't want to work with older people because they're broken and I don't want to, I don't want to hurt them. So there's the tendency. And again, I'm stereotyping and I have a number of physical therapists out there who are great friends, great mentors, but you know, there's the stereotype that you do the rehab just for example, and you'll appreciate this as a dual hip replacement. You know, you do minimal resistance training because, you know, you don't really need to do that much. How do you combat that both with people who come to take your classes and also with maybe the client who comes in and this is what they've been told. And that's the person that, you know, when they get up from the chair, when they, when you come out to greet them in the waiting room and you're kind of at the back of your mind, cheering, 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 as they try to get up from the chair and you're thinking, and when they do it, you're like, Whew. you know, that's yeah. some, to some extent, you know, a minute to get up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there, it's a hard, there's a bit of a disconnect um, from medical to physical therapy, to personal training. And I really feel like all of us should be in a, like a team approach to help these folks. But a lot of times, especially with, um, you're going to get a hip replacement. And I'm like, for the next eight weeks, you could do some great things that make your rehab so much easier. And they're like, doctor said, I didn't need to do that. And I'm like, why, why would you not want to do that? Right? Like why would the doctor not say, Oh, I don't want them to hurt their hip. They're getting their hip replaced. Like what's the worst thing that's going to happen. You're going to make it more inflamed and more like you can't do any more damage to it. If you already have to get it replaced, or even if you do do more damage to it, what's, you know, they're about to stretch all of your muscle fibers apart and they're going to get that as strong as possible between now and then. So once that's all done and you're like, okay, let's get back up on your feet your muscles know what it's like to engage and struggle and reactivate and support because now you have a joint that doesn't do that naturally anymore. It's on the muscles now to move all that, you know, like a, a muscle and a clam. When you tear it apart, you can't put that back together and be, Oh my bad. Like it's over with, right? With the now all the muscle around that has to support this. So why would we not get that as strong as possible? Physical therapist agrees. I agree. But in this case, their doctor doesn't. And so who they listen to, they listen to the doctor, they don't rehab. And then after surgery, they do one or two sessions and they're like, doc says, or PT says, I can just go about my day. And, and so I'm in a constant set up mindset with my clients where I'm educating with every session that are in here. I'm educating in emails that I'm sending to them. And I'm like, send this to people that, you know, every post I put up. I don't just put up a post of my clients pushing a sled through the parking lot. I push up, put up a, a post of them and say, let's talk about gait. Why do old people take smaller steps when they get older? Let's sit to stands. Let me put up a four minute video about how to progress your sit to stand. Every single post, everything has education behind it, information behind it. Here's the problem. Let me give you an answer, right? And let's try to correct that. And I'm hoping that that mindset catches on. I hope I'm answering your question, but trying to bridge that gap in there. And then I will contact the, the physical therapist. If they're not someone I re help refer them to, I'll talk to the physical therapist, try to get into the same mindset with them and make sure we're on the same page and even call the doctors and talk to the doctors and be like, doc, why, why would you not want my client to, you know, strength train or this person to strength train and try to like, you know, change that environment. Cause I'm, we're all working in the same place. I'm going to, I've worked with, you know, eight different clients who all had the exact same doctor do their knee rehab. 
So that doctor knows me. He know we've never met, but he knows my name and he knows I know what I'm doing. And he's like, you're with Robert. You're good. I don't have to tell you anything. Just go, just go see him. You know what I mean? Like that's come from 15 years of being in this area and, and developing this. So it's like, I wish we had to answer the question. I wish we had a better way to kind of draw that team and like educate the team together. The, the pre-surgeries, even before that, the, the pre I'm going to need surgery someday, you know, prehab, if we want to call it that, I'm not a huge fan of that term. Cause you're like anticipating the injury. So let's just call it before. And then, and then, okay, now we know we're going to have surgery. Let's, let's do a plan. Let's give six weeks, eight weeks, whatever. Let's get them as strong as we can go to Rocky mode, get them ready. Then they go do the surgery and then we can kick ass moving forward from there. Like that is a great plan. That's a macro cycle for a, you know, a football player. You got preseason, you got, you got postseason, you got at off season. You know what I mean? You, you're programming, um, like you would an athlete, this surgery and this experience for them. And we have such great success doing that with people than, than the other way around, like you mentioned in the beginning. Uh, just, you know, we'll be okay. Just go do the surgery and you're good. And I know one of the things for young professionals, or if you have a professional who's relatively shy, the idea of contacting a physical therapist or contacting a physician, it's a little different either oh, yeah. A, if you're more experienced, or B, you've got friends or you've worked with them before. How was that the first time you did it? Or has there been a time when the physician kind of looked at you and said, well, you're just a, or, or physical therapist looked at you and said, well, you're just a personal trainer. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I went in and talked to the physical therapist. Like I went there and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm a personal trainer. You're working with one of my clients right now. I want to learn. I want to learn what you know that I need to know to work with that client. Like, I don't need to know all your physical therapy. I get that, but I'm looking around here and I'm seeing single leg RDLs and bent over flies and I'm seeing quad extent. I can do all that. I can do all that here. So you tell me what they can and can't do one day a week and they come see you the other day of the week and let's get them better twice as fast rather than you do your eight weeks and then I come on, right? Like let's team up and do this. And luckily for me, the physical therapist I went to talk to, he was like, that's a great idea. I've never had anybody come in here and do this before. And so Tony and Dan and Kyle and everybody at Results Physical Therapy, they all, they're all like, cool. We got a guy now when people come in and they, we have someone we trust and we can say, go see Robert. You, you want to continue? You've done your eight sessions with us and you need a trainer? Go see Robert. And they send people my direction because I started that relationship. So don't be nervous to go in and say, I don't know what to do with someone who's having knee surgery. I need your help, right? Buy them lunch, buy them some coffee. You know, pe people don't say no if they're willing to get back to this. Come in and say, I need, I need, want to learn. I want to help out. I want to help get people better. You guys point me in the right direction. You know, even now, our therapist, Dan, he calls me after seeing someone and he goes, I just saw Linda do this. Don't do this. I want to see her back in four weeks. Now, I know exactly what to do now, right? And, and I can do all the lifts and I can do all the movements. I just don't know which ones make her better and which ones make her worse. And all we're talking about is tennis elbow, right? But if I continue to force her to do reverse curls, it's just going to keep making that shit worse, right? So I need to know. You got to just go in and ask. Don't be afraid. I'm still learning every time I do. I have a new client. Dan, I don't have anybody with plantar fasciitis, bro. Tell me what I need to know. And he's like, all right, let's get on a call. And we do it. But that's a relationship I developed because I had... I had the eagerness and the desire to go in and say, I need your help. And then when it comes to the doctors, you know, I come in with a doc and like, doc, I'm going to be working with this person afterwards. So I'm coming to you for advice, like a very humbled approach. I don't come in and be like, all right, bro, here, here's what, here's what you need to tell the client. You know what I mean? I come in going, I, you're about to do a back surgery to somebody. What do I need to know? I just keep coming into that. What do I need to know? So I don't jack them up when we come back. 
And, and if, if they're willing to share, they'll share. And if they're willing to give you a basic information, it's something. I've had some doctors that are super cool and get on a call with me and they go through it and they're showing me pictures. And I've had others that won't take my call and they send me a, a printout with circles around the exercises to do and which ones not to. And I'm like, hey, either way, I got information, right? It's not not what I wanted, but it's, you know, it was information. And um, I'll tell you, your clients really appreciate you doing that. Because when you come in and you're like, here's what Dr. So-and-so said, here's what your PT so-and-so said, and here's what I'm going to do. And they're like, how cool is this, right? The guy just put it all together. He built the team. He brought it all together. We're the linchpin, right? We're the linchpin. We're the one that can be that person. And you're like, and I got a dietitian that you can talk to, right? And oh, you're depressed going through this whole thing. Here's our behavioral counselor. Now you got a team. Your insurance should be doing that, right? We should be a part of that situation. There's a whole other conversation, right? But anyway, <laughs> like you can really help people by doing this. It just takes some effort. And that effort is recognized by your clients. I guarantee you that. It takes some effort. It takes some humbleness. And what you describe doing, you've probably realized this, but listeners may or may not. You just described a marketing plan. Because now the physical therapists know, oh, here's somebody to send to. Physical therapists talk to other physical therapists. Orthopedic surgeons talk to other orthopedic surgeons. And most importantly, clients talk to other clients. It's not, uh, not everybody's in a silo. So I suspect if you went back and started tracking clients and physical therapists, you could probably have a tree of clients 15 to 20 long going back to 2010 or 11 from the first one where maybe you, as you said, humbled yourself, yeah. but really didn't humble yourself more along the lines of saying, okay, I'm going to work with this person. I want to give them the best opportunity if they're paying me 40, 50, 60, $70 an hour. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a, Hey, welcome, welcome. You're a little late. We've got 50 minutes to work with you and I've got to take a phone call. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's, um, when you go to you pay to go to a conference, you you pay to go hear these presenters speak and give the, and share their information. And if I know this doctor has experience and that physical therapist has experience, to me, it's like I want to go have a mini session with them. You know what I mean? That's really what it is. It's like I'm willing to go and do that with whatever that takes. And I, th I think that creates a great experience and a great relationship. And I started presenting in 2009 was the first time I got on stage and did a talk and it was terrible, but, but I did it. And pretty much every presentation I've given, I'll have a physical therapist come up afterwards and go, I wish you were in my area because I'd love to refer people to you. And that's a great compliment. Um, but the, the alarming part is how many times I've heard that because every city I presented in and every conference I've had the opportunity to go to 150 something of them now. Um, I continue to hear that. And so it's showing me that they don't have, they don't have the people, you know, like you were suggesting that are implementing that marketing plan. They're not doing that, but they want to, they really want to, you know, think about how many people physical therapists see, how many sessions they get, those sessions expire and then they're, or they use them all. And, and then they go, well, what do I do now? And they're like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, but yeah, if they had your business card, they could give them. I mean, it's, you know, if they're, they're going to send if, everyone your way. Yeah. If they're working in a traditional clinic, they're expected to see 20 to 25 patients a day. And, you know, so how, you got how 150 much, people a week. That how, how, much, how much one on one time can they get versus yeah. coming and seeing a qualified personal trainer? And what you described is having the understanding and not replacing it. I know I had the opportunity 
four or five years ago to go to a two-day uh, conference that was put on at the University of Pittsburgh for the physical therapy students uh, by Dr. Shirley Sarman, who is a renowned physical therapist. And the information that she was giving about movement, et cetera, uh, I, I went up to her. I was actually fortunate enough. She spent an hour and a half using me as a demo body on my to look at my back, nice. uh, which was phenomenal because, you know, here's one of the she, she's in, she's in the realm of like uh, Dr. McGill. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, I said, this is something that should be anybody who works with people, you know, coaches, personal trainers, athletic trainers, they should, they should be getting this information. She goes, I agree. Yeah. So I, I think my message to you as, as we kind of close it up, because I know your time is valuable is what you're doing and what you're describing is what professionals do. And the message that you're giving out there, there's going to be at least one person that hears this and realizes you know, I'm not alone on the island. There are other people who are doing the same thing, and maybe it encourages to do that. So I want to thank Robert Linkle for talking to us. As I said before, I think he's one of the people who's really taken the personal training uh, certification and title and turned it into a profession. I think if more people did it, all of us who are involved in the movement field would be better. So Robert, thank you for giving up your time. I know it's been a very busy few weeks and months, and I appreciate you making time to do this. My, my pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Lisa, on, on the other side of, of this. Thank you for putting this on. And anybody listening out there, if there's any way that I can assist and help you um, in your career choice to do this, and, and that's personal training across the board, look me up, Instagram, social media, whatever, email me. I'm more than happy to help in any way that I can. So thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live wherever you find podcasts or on our website, www.moving2live.com. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live and check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, F-I-T-L-A-B-P-G-H.com, which focuses on people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority because movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Until next time, keep on moving.